Welcome to The Tea Room, I'm Wendy John. Thanks for joining me. The beauty of the cervical screening program that has been in existence for many years is that it can detect the abnormality at the pre-cancer stage and so it can be treated and removed at that point. It's been five years since Australia transformed its cervical cancer screening regime. Instead of a two-yearly pap smear, women and anyone with the cervix are now encouraged to do a self-test every five years. Today, we explore how successful the new approach has been and get answers to some common questions GPs have. Joining us is Professor Annabelle Farnsworth, Ambassador for Pathology Awareness Australia. Professor Farnsworth is also the DHM Chair in Pathology at University of Notre Dame and adjunct professor in their School of Medicine. Thanks so much for joining us, Professor Farnsworth. It's a pleasure to be here. Professor, what are the general outcomes so far of this new program? The transition has gone relatively smoothly, given that it was such a major change. We did have a very successful cervical screening program prior to that, but with the development of new technologies and also a very successful human papillomavirus vaccination program, the decision was made to change to primary HPV testing. The advantage of that was also that the test could be done five-yearly as opposed to every two years. And that has happened relatively successfully. And now we're on to our next screening round. One of the major issues that the whole new program faces is recruiting women into the program. But the beauty of the cervical screening program that has been in existence for many years is that it can detect the abnormality at the pre-cancer stage before it's truly started to spread around the body like most cancers do. And so it can be treated and removed at that point. So it's a terrific test, yeah. Do we have any hard data around cancer rates? The rates of cervical cancer at the moment around six to seven per 100,000. And that has just slowly fallen over the last few years. Cancer rates are also a little bit behind in the collecting data, so we don't actually have an absolute up-to-date number. But one of the issues that is very relevant to our program is the fact that the rates of cervical cancer do vary amongst different populations. And so, for instance, our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population have a significantly higher incidence and mortality of cervical cancer. And so that's a problem that we are very conscious of and trying to address. And that's directly related to the lower rates of screening in that population. That's exactly right. And it's one of those interesting conundrums that the lower rates of screening mean that you therefore then see the higher rates of cancer. The other issue is in the rural and remote situations, there's a higher mortality because women aren't able to access all of the management services, the further investigation and treatment services that are very important in this program as well. And so that's also an area that is being being looked at. What has been the impact of teen vaccination? We are seeing falling rates of disease in that vaccinated group, which is indicative of the fact that the vaccine works very well. And it's a very safe and very valuable part of this push to prevent cervical cancer. 
The vaccination rates are excellent in Australia. We should be very proud of that. The rates are around 80% in girls, and it's given in their first year of high school. They're slightly lower in boys. Boys also are eligible for the vaccination also in the high school during their high school time. The World Health Organization would like that to be higher. It should be up around 90%, but it's still been an extremely good program. Uh, What feedback have you received from GPs about the program? Part of the problem with the program was the fact that it is more complicated than it used to be. So even though women need to screen less often, the management can be quite difficult and there are, interestingly enough, a number of Medicare restrictions. In the old pap smear program, there were no Medicare restrictions at all, but women are only eligible for a Medicare benefit every five years. The other issue has been the complicated nature of the fact that HPV may not necessarily be associated with disease. And so a woman can be HPV positive, but actually be at higher risk of developing disease, but not have it at that time. So these women need to be having ongoing monitoring and assessment, and that can create a problem and become more complicated for general practitioners. Thinking about MBS, who is eligible? It's anyone with a cervix over 25 years, is that correct? That's exactly right, yep. And for people under the age of 25 who have been sexually assaulted or been sexually active from a younger age, they're also eligible under MBS? Yes, they are. And that highlights that as part of putting in these restrictions, there are a lot of exceptions to that rule. So as you've just said, anyone under the age of 25 under those circumstances is eligible. And all the general practitioner has to do is write that on the request form, sending it off to the pathology lab. Obviously, if a woman or anyone with a cervix has symptoms or signs that might suggest cervical cancer, such as abnormal bleeding or an abnormal discharge, they are eligible for what we call a co-test, which means they have both an HPV and a cytology sample done at that time. And that can be done at any time. That's not Medicare restricted under those circumstances. And that's because we want to keep women safe. So even if you have had had a negative HPV, say a year ago, but then developed symptoms or signs, the general practitioner can then order one of these co-tests, again, to exclude something abnormal. Is it possible that non-HPV cervical cancer or other cancers aren't being picked up? I guess if there are other symptoms, then of course the, the doctor is going to be looking at other diagnostics, perhaps about STIs as well. As you mentioned in the introduction, there's now a self-collect option. There always was a self-collect option in the old program, but once again, it was very restricted. As of July of 2022, it became eligible, all women were eligible to do a self-collect. But one of the disadvantages of self-collect is the fact that we can't do STI screening for chlamydia and gonorrhea and other STIs on that sample. So there are times when it is still worthwhile for someone to have a full cervical sample taken. And that's where the collection and assessment stays very well within the general practitioner um, remit. I believe very strongly that general practice has always been a very central part of cervical screening because the general practitioner can individualise a lot of management, a lot of conversations with that individual person. And so that's where the GP will make those decisions. And so rather than a self-collect, 
a, a cervical sample may be more beneficial at that time. And I think this is where the, the GP is central because they're having the relationship with the person. It's not always apparent that someone may have a cervix, but, but having a, someone's health history and having known them or those conversations around sexual assault often only happen after deep levels of trust have been established, which a GP is able to do. So that's that's the role of the GP, as you say, is quite central and you see that as being critical to the program's success. Yes, I believe very strongly that that's the case and I think it often goes unnoticed how that is very important in every aspect, choosing which particular sampling method, recruiting people, managing people, reassuring people, all of those things really can only happen in the general practice landscape. So reassuring people, could we discuss the psychological experience of waiting five years instead of two, you know, getting a result of it might be an issue, come back in a year, might be a little bit confronting for some people if if they're new to the program. Have you had any feedback around that? Initially, there was some concern about the length of time between screening tests, but the program that we have is very safe. We have built into the program a number of checks and balances, and one of those is, as I've already mentioned, the fact that if someone has a negative HPV test at any point in time but then develop symptoms or signs during that five-year period, they are encouraged and recommended to go back and then have one of these other tests along the way. So there is a safety mechanism and as with all public health programs, it's getting the education out to both women and general practitioners that this is the way it should be done. There are other obvious exemptions as well. If someone's immune suppressed, they can have a sample taken every three years. Women in follow-up have samples taken annually. So there are a number of exceptions. And I think if there is any issue with the new program, it is the complex nature. It's significantly more complex than the old program. And so there does need to be a lot of education, continuing education about this area. Are there any key points for GPs in terms of, you know, keep in mind this, this and this? First up, the most important thing is recruiting patients. It's a perfect opportunity for a general practitioner. Uh, A woman might present accompanying a, a sick child or with another health issue and checking their cervical screening status at that time is really valuable, even if it means making another appointment for them to come in later or explaining about self-testing. In the old program, general practices often had reminder systems that they ran themselves for their patients to encourage them to come back for their regular checkups. And women's health checkups were part of that landscape as well. So in the new program, some of those things may have fallen by the wayside. I think another key message is the fact that the National Cancer Screening Register has an online portal, which is now accessible to all people in general practice. Practitioners themselves can allow practice managers or practice nurses to look at it. It gives an ideal set of data about patients' past screening histories. It's still a lot of people don't know about it, even though it's been up and running for a couple of years. Which groups might benefit from self-collection? Very much part of the National Cancer Plan is to encourage cancer screening in what have been marginalised groups. So the LGBTIQ plus group all need to have continuing screening and the screening rates in that group, we do have data to show that it is quite low. 
And so these people are at risk still of developing cervical disease and therefore need screening. Self-collect is ideal for those people because they may have felt alienated from routine, regular medical practices in the past. I think it's also important to emphasise that a self-collect done properly under medical supervision is as sensitive as a full cervical sample. So people need to be reassured that it's not a second-rate test. The only other thing is that if the test comes back positive with HPV, the person does need to return for a cervical sample so that their management can be tailored to whatever particular abnormality or not is found on that cervical sample. So it is a little bit more complicated, but it's still a great recruitment tool and and a great option for people who might have felt uncomfortable about having a proper vaginal examination. A bit of a gateway. It's a great gateway, yep. It could also create a more comfortable experience for people suffering from dysphoria as well. and Absolutely. And even people who have never had an examination below the, the waist. Yes, yes. Or people who've had terrible unwanted sexual advances in the past. They may also not want to be examined. And so this offers an option for them that is reliable and good in the Four Corners story on the news this week. Uh, An article talked about girls being discouraged from taking the HPV vax at Tangara Girls for School in Sydney. Do we have any insight as to how big a problem that might be? The role of vaccination is crucial to the success of our cervical screening program. Religious beliefs, people concerned about vaccination and what it may do is always an issue. All we can really do is assure people that it is safe, it is reliable, it is incredibly worthwhile. And people should not be frightened of any social implication of being vaccinated or what it might mean for people. Mm. It's actually a really good story is one in Malaysia, which has a high Muslim population. And by working with those religious communities, by talking through with them by getting halal certification for the vaccine, a fully-fledged government-funded vaccination program was rolled out in Malaysia with great success. Have you received any feedback from oncologists? One of the issues with the new program was that the rates of referral to colposcopy clinics within the oncology space was significantly higher than was anticipated. And It's true to say that many of these colposcopy clinics just got overwhelmed in the first round of the program. Colposcopy is recommended and it's basically having a look using a big microscope at the cervix to see if any abnormality can be found. So it's not... It's not a horrible procedure. It's it's done within the clinic and it just is part of the whole program. So that was an issue, although that, that is slowly getting better and women need to be able to access those services really well. And But there are a lot of oncologists that were concerned about that. The other issue was that a lot of older women who had screened very well for their whole life suddenly were shown to have BHPV positive where no abnormality was detected And so there was a great deal of concern about how to manage those people, but many of those issues are being sorted out. And finally, I think the oncologists still get distressed, and certainly in Sydney, in our big gynaecological oncology clinics, 
the concern is that they are still seeing too many young women with cervical cancer who haven't been screened. And the there is, a again, a story which is a, a true story about a young 39-year-old woman who died of cervical cancer who had had four children. And so she had been in the medical system many times during that period but had never had a cervical screening test. And the gynaecological oncologist that I know, very much anxious to get the recruitment message out to everybody as I am. Is there anything else that you might like to add? No, I think basically it's a good thing. It's the new screening round. We just want to get as many people to avail themselves of this program as possible. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Farnsworth. Really appreciate your time. It's a pleasure. That was Professor Annabelle Farnsworth, Ambassador for Pathology Awareness Australia. I'm Wendy John. Thanks for joining me in the Tea Room.